I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Can you imagine what it must feel like to hold the title world's greatest athlete? Well, today's guest knows exactly how it feels. Trey Hardy is a two-time world champion and an Olympic silver medalist in the decathlon. The decathlon is the men's ultimate all-around test, a 10-event contest covering the entire range of athletics disciplines spread over two days of competition with the champion earning the title, world's greatest athlete. For such a phenomenal title, what struck me most during our talk was Trey's ever-present humility. He's an athlete that's been through so much and yet still sees it all from such a beautiful perspective. We talked about everything from the importance of mentors to dealing with injuries to what if we give our best and we still come up short. And of course, we talked about how to train and compete with no regrets. If having a mindset like Trey's is something that you're wanting to dive deeper into, I've created three easy ways for you to learn more about mental training. Just go visit laurawilkinson.com slash learn and you'll find an option that's right for you. There's a freebie that contains five smart strategies for confidence. There's a free five-day challenge to conquer your fear. And there's also a complete step-by-step program for the athlete that's ready to take their game to the next level. Quickly, before we get into the episode, please just take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review us. This really does help get the word out and help us continue to bring on these awe-inspiring guests like the world's greatest athlete, Trey Hardy. I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Trey Hardy, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast in Hook'em. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Texas fight. Oh, yeah. Hey, I want to say a big congrats to you and your wife, Chelsea, on the birth of your third child and first boy. Thank you very, very much. We are we're treading water right now. We're doing good. <laughs> we're doing good. Everybody's healthy. That's all that matters. Right. And you said power naps and coffee are helping you survive, right? I'm, yeah, I'm currently on coffee number three. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> nice, nice. And it's one in the afternoon. So doing good, doing good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want you to take us kind of back to the beginning because I know you didn't dream up, dream uh, like growing up of being the next like Dan O'Brien, but you had some different dreams. What What started you off? Like what? So what started me off on like the path of like sports and athletics or what started me into this like Olympic? Uh... Sports and athletics. Let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. So, um, my younger years, I was, I was raised by a single mom and I had an older sister and she wasn't all that too into sports really. And so sports became this like after school daycare program for me. (laughs) It was just where I made all my best friends were, were from sports and all-star teams and travel teams and stuff like that. And it just became this way of life. I didn't know anything else other than to have some after school activity and go season to season to season to season. I loved playing every sport with the exception of maybe like football. Like I think organized football for me, I was too small, undersized, just got destroyed in a like a run heavy. Wait, 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 wait. You're like six, five now, aren't you? Yeah, I grew, you know, but I was, (laughs) I was a late bloomer. You know, I remember distinctly getting my first like learner's permit and you know that has your height and weight on there and it's pretty permanent i remember like embellishing <laughs> my height and my weight so i didn't feel like such a scrawny little kid but when you pole vault you're pretty much you're brought down to to earth because you have to have, have the weighted poles and stuff so i was i remember i got my driver's license i think i was 130 pounds like five eight five oh, nine wow so i was wow. and 
a nice little distance runner there for a little bit. <laughs> so when you started sports, you were kind of just doing whatever was in season, like all of the things, right? I did. I just kind of floated through. I just enjoyed competition, enjoyed being with my friends, enjoyed that trying to win, you know, enjoyed the, that. And it wasn't really like an addiction to like pursuing excellence or I didn't love practice. It was like, let's lace them up and play a game. That's what this is all about. Let's go. Let's just have a, have a fun competition here. And it didn't matter what we were doing. I, even if it wasn't organized, it was table tennis or a game of horse or whatever it was. It was going to be pretty aggressive and <laughs> uh, pretty cutthroat by the end of it between me and my friends. So you were already competitive. Like, when did that kind of take a turn into like track and field? Because I read somewhere that you had like dreams of being in the NBA. I mean, as as every you know, I think naive freshman in high school does. They're like, okay, I'm gonna. <laughs> right. This is the year. This is the year. I'm gonna score thirty <laughs> points a game. But I was basketball was the thing that I loved. It was the thing that I was going for away camps and team camps and doing all that stuff. I had, I was a starter I for all the school teams. I, it was the thing that like I couldn't get enough of. I wasn't a gym rat because I had other things going on in my life and other sports and other seasons. But it was this thing that like I think in my wildest dreams, if I had gotten to play like NAIA basketball, it would have been just the best thing in the world. And it wasn't until right my junior year, the coach kind of walked up to me and just said, you know, Trey, we don't need you this year. And this is like a year. Oh. Yeah, this is a year after starting on the JV team as a sophomore, not really having an opportunity to play up to varsity, but I was going to be a starter that year. It was going to be, let's go. Me and all my buddies were going to, we were going to play all varsity together. And it just went from like, okay, well, I guess I'll play JV again this year. And he's like, no, 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 we don't need you at all. Why don't you just go be a pole vaulter or something? And that was like, those were, those were his exact words. And I'll, I don't know, I'm 36 years old. They're, they're stuck with me. This was like, <laughs> this was almost 20 years ago. And so it just, it stung really bad. And honestly, at that moment, it was kind of like, I think it happened on a Thursday or Friday. I definitely didn't want to go to school the next Monday. My parents made me. But that Monday, I cleaned out my locker and went out there and was like, I'm going to show this idiot coach, <laughs> like how good of a pole vaulter I can be and be the best dog on pole vaulter that's ever been at the school. And and that was when it kind of clicked on. Like that was the first time I set out to do something with more intention than just having fun and being competitive. Well, see, I can totally relate to that because I was kicked off my high school diving team for being a waste of space. And I am 42 years old now. And yes, it still it makes me really upset. <laughs> so, it does, right? And it's yeah. such an interesting thing. And I it was a struggle for me when you get past all that, the detraction and 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 I think doing stuff with that externalized motivation. It, it is a hard hurdle to get over to transition into internal motivation, uh, the, the real why of, of why you're out there. It's a weird transition once you're like, oh, I could be good at this. I'm not doing it for that person or that reason anymore and trying to find that other reason. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I also love the fact that like, you did a bunch of sports and you you enjoyed them all. And and I kind of just, because I feel like now, like these days, and I'm kind of interested in your opinion on that. Like so many people start so young and I don't know if it's the parents or the kids, but like they feel like they have to be pro at like age 12 at everything. And it's just like, sometimes you just need to try some different stuff and love what you're doing and it will develop into something else. Or you'll take a right turn from some event, like what happened to you and it might throw you into something that you're really good at. Like what's your opinion on on that? Or what have you seen maybe? You have to look at, I think, the end result. You know, do you want your kid to be good at sports or do you want them to be happy and full, full of joy and contentment? And so some people find that in sport. Some people find that in specific things like diving or gymnastics. But others, if they're forced into something just for the sake of being good at the sport, often lead that they're those tragic 
beware tales. You know, they're the ones that you find out like some Olympic gold medalist now has a some kind of chemical dependency or has fallen onto hard times or something like that because they 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 missed out on their childhood. They feel like right. they've missed this part of themselves. And so for me and my wife, my wife was a better athlete than I, I ever was or will ever be. She was a, a world championship silver medalist in the pole vault. She was a collegiate record holder in the pole vault. She's on like the 100-year Pac-12 or Pac-10 all-century team. Wow. Like she's phenomenal. She also was an all-state hurdler in the state of California. She got soccer scholarships to Pac-10 schools. Like she's a, a baller, but neither of us were forced into anything from our parents. It was always done out of this internal reason to want to do something. And so she and I have, from the outset, kind of line in the sand. If our kids don't like doing something, we, we're not going to make them do it. And every year around the NFL draft, there's a statistic that pops up. All the first round picks in the NFL draft, I think like 99% of them were multi-sport athletes. Interesting. But none of them specialize. See, I love this. And I love talking to somebody who was an athlete who's now a parent, too. Because, I mean, I think about this stuff now with my kids starting sports. And it's it's kind of the same because you, you want them to kind of, like, get into something that they love. But then, you know, there's that boundary of, like, you, you've got to help them commit and, like, push through certain things, but not push too hard because it's got to come from them. And like you said, they've got to enjoy it. So it's it's an interesting balance being on this side of things <laughs> as a parent now, mm-hmm. for sure. And I, I would imagine it's it's a little bit harder with individual sports versus team dynamics. So for me, I was never on an in, in an individual sport until I tried track and field for a couple of weeks my freshman year of high school. You know, it was never just me, it was always a team out there performing whereas like with diving it's just you and the and the platform. And there is a, there I would imagine there's a little less camaraderie there than there is and it's way more skillful and way more challenging than like, you know, pl- hiding on a soccer field if you don't have the skill. <laughs> and so I would imagine it's harder to stick with some of those at a younger age as well. Yeah, I think at least it's just a different dynamic. Like I was always in an individual sport, so I don't really know any difference. So <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of fun. I love that you have, have both sides of that. But like going back to um, you starting pole vault, like did your basketball coach when he cut you specifically say, go do pole vault? And you're like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Or had you already tried it? Or how did pole vault become this random thing? <laughs> so that was what I did those few weeks. I pole vaulted for a few weeks my freshman year because there was a gap in sports season. Like it was kind of, after spring football before baseball and it was hey what's that guy doing i just saw somebody pole vault and he's like oh it's pole vault i was like i want to try that it's like okay that was it so i did that for a couple of weeks and back then there was like a freshman state championship in the state of alabama and i got to go to that i I don't even think you had to qualify it was just like if you wanted to come you you could show up and it was just this really neat like unique sport and so then the next season there was i didn't play baseball the next season and so there was a two-month gap in my sports season so i i pole vaulted for two months and that became like i got a little bit better i made it like third or fourth in the state that year and it was this every year that i that you got better at it it became more and more fun and more and more addictive to try to get a little bit better at it and yeah and so at that time my junior year i'd stopped playing football stopped playing everything and i was just playing basketball in the winter and running track in the spring and that was just what the he the coach knew I was a pole vaulter in the off season, so he just said, "Go be a pole vaulter." <laughs> well, I have to ask you. I've always been interested in it, and I, I mean, it just it looks so fun to me because I obviously love flying through the air and, mm-hmm. and off of high places, but it also looks really intimidating because of the pole and like, what if you don't make it up? And like, how does that? I mean, have you had some bad crashes? I've avoided a lot of bad crashes, but it, I think it's because I just you got to be pretty good to have bad crashes if that makes sense like you're not gonna <laughs> it's like the difference between a one meter spring or a 10 meter high like 
you're not going to get hurt that bad from falling that low to the ground. Gotcha. <laughs> but I, um, you're right in that it's it's kind of the the only sport in track and field where your life is in your hands. Genuinely, it's one of the most deadly sports in the in the world in terms of participation and catastrophic incidents. And really. And um, it's fine cheerleading and things like that, but it does happen. People do pass away and have permanent brain injury, but it, it's the thing on the back of the runway. And it's like the, the scene from Point Break. Like if you let fear, I forget the doggone, I'm going to forget the quote, but it's <laughs> if you if fear leads to hesitation, hes- hesitation leads to something and then you're dead or something like that. But that, that's the thing. You have to have that, min- that mindset and the confidence and the mentality that my best is good enough to perform this jump and you have the skills and the, the body awareness to take care of yourself if things do go awry. But it's a delicate balance of being just smart enough that you still want to do it. <laughs> or just, I guess, just dumb enough that you still want to try it. Right. I, I could totally relate to this. So this makes a lot of sense to me being a, a platform diver. But um, so how, what does it, okay, what does it feel like to do it? Like walk me through like one of your epic jumps or how do you, do you call it a jump or do you call what do you call it yeah jump or a vault whichever a vault. Yeah, how, yeah walk me through like an awesome one what does it feel like well there's a lot of mental cues on the runway uh, with steering and so first of all you know through warm-ups how your body feels and if you've got if you got any blow or not like if you're running fast that day you know how warm-ups have gone and there's just a, a certain thing where you know that your run is on and you know you're really confident in your steps and you just got one simple cue, like something like keep your hands up or you know drive your chest forward or so, some simple cue that you can do where it makes everything so simple. And just catching the ride, there, there's, there's just this thing about timing up where you are on the pole as the pole is uncoiling to catch a ride where you're in a, a, a place on earth that you've never been you know you're just it might only be two inches higher than you've ever been but it just it's a unique experience and it's all it's the right pull the right wind the right grip the right run the right everything and it's just this kind of sweet spot that uh, again i'm I'm struggling to to describe it because it didn't happen to me that often (laughs) it only takes one good time to like feel it though and so what does it feel like once you've gone over and you're just dropping is that just such a sweet moment as you're like you know you did it yeah, some of the some of the coolest pictures of like anyone in the world, some of the best vaulters in the world, and then even even myself, when you're over the bar and coming down, and you're already celebrating. <laughs> you know, you're falling eighteen, nineteen, twenty feet from from the air onto a little foam pad, but you're already just wiggling and going nuts and shooting finger guns and doing all that kind of stuff. And it just there's no feeling quite like it that it really in any other sport that I've tried or done. I think maybe other, maybe a hole in one in golf where it just all lines up and. That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I think you described it very well. I'm totally, I'm totally into it right now. <laughs> so, okay. Like, so you got pretty good at pole vault and you went to Mississippi State, right? For pole vaulting? I did. I, I ended up, yeah, just really shoving it back to that coach who told me to go be a pole vaulter. <laughs> I ended up, yeah, I broke the, the Alabama State record in the pole vault and got recruited by Mississippi State. Yeah. And then, yeah showed up on campus there and then they told me I was going to do the decathlon. So <laughs> yeah, how how does that change? <laughs> so walk me uh, through that. Cuz your your college experience is interesting too cuz you only had a couple of years at Mississippi. I did and and I I loved it there. It was awesome. I loved the coaching staff. I liked every every part about being in Starkville and I really there started to and let's get this straight. In high school I did not train. I didn't 
practice. My practice was like going and grabbing a pole vault pole and, and jumping. You know, we didn't <laughs> we didn't have a pole vault coach. It was just me out there messing around and trying to figure out how to get it done. Right. And so I got to school and I went from like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to be a pole vaulter. Like I just get to pole vault every day. And the coach is like, no, you're going to train for the decathlon. And I had a, I didn't know really what that would entail. And it was, it's, you know, the most demanding, physically arduous thing in, in track. And I, luckily I had a really great uh, mentor, a senior at the time named uh, Daniel Hunter, who ended up being a coach at Westlake when I came over to Austin, Texas. Oh, how cool. Coincidentally enough. Yeah. And so he kind of showed me the ropes and, and made sure I wasn't messing up and, and I was doing the right stuff. And I became almost the mantras and, and kind of dogma of, of being a decathlete got instilled in me of what it takes to be good. And they made me stick with it. You know, I didn't want to do it all the time. You know, there were days I'd show up and I'd say, I don't want to do this. Can I just be a pole vaulter? And they made me stick it out and do my very first one. And then after my very first one, that's kind of all it took, which was coincidentally at the Texas Relays. Okay, let's back up just a little bit. So, but how do you just go from pole vaulting to 10 events? I mean, are you slowly like doing these other events at meets? Are you doing a heptathlon? Are you doing like, how, how does that work? I mean, or do you just, yep, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you start off very poorly. You know, there's a reason not many freshman decathletes do very well. It's because this, I mean, it's an old man's sport. It's, it's a hard thing to master all, all 10 skills. Oh, really just nine skills in one fifteen hundred it's hard to do that. And it takes time and repetition and there's not enough hours in the day and nobody's, nobody's bulletproof. So you're going to get hurt. And so it was just a li little by little. And basically for a freshman decathlete, you're just kind of trying to manage their, their motivation and kind of manage their, their mental, you know, the fragility of failing all day, every day. That's kind of what you have to deal with. Right. That's got to be a very, a humbling process, I would probably say. It is because you think you're doing good and you tee it up for your, like your, your first decathlon and you just get spanked by all these uh, sophomores and juniors and seniors. And you're like, well, I'm not good at this. And they're like, no, no, no. That was their, and then they're trying to like help your ego and tell you how great it was for your first time. And you're just like, no, that guys, let's just do this. Let's just pole vault. <laughs> oh man. So, okay. So you had a great mentor. I love that you had some people like speaking into you at Mississippi and like keeping you on it. But then they totally dropped their what, indoor track program. Like, did you know that was coming or was that kind of blindsiding? I mean, no, I'm not, I wasn't in the room when they're making the decisions. And so they, they, they tell the team and did a really good job of kind of keeping everybody on board because we still had a really good track team. You know, we still, the year we only had the outdoor season, we were still a top 10 NCAA team, which is one of the best finishes ever for a Mississippi State team. We, I mean, we were better than Texas. Like we were, we had a really, really good season that year and they sold into it. But that was also the same year they added the indoor heptathlon as kind of the indoor version of the, the decathlon for the multi-eventers. And I was kind of missing out on that. A, a few other things led to, to me ultimately leaving, but it really wasn't as big a deal as some other, you know, some of the other reasons. Okay. That led me to leave. Yeah. So was it a hard transition though, once you showed up to Texas or was it a pretty easy, like you slid right in and it just, it was smooth sailing? Somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> definitely on the smooth sailing side, but you know, I mean, all beginnings are, are hard and, and difficult and transitions, not easy. This was my second major, major life transition, but it was one that I was so at peace with because of um, the environment, the training environment, the, the team of people, the coaching staff, the and and just my teammates, it was just such a smooth and like peaceful time for me, like emotionally, where it, it was not even a second thought, like, yep, Austin, Texas is where I need to be. 
Mario Satania, who's my coach, who was the assistant coach at the time, like the, he needs to be my next coach. Same philosophy as the, my previous coach at Mississippi State. Um, I was coming into one of the best training, had the best training partner in the world, an All-American decathlete, probably the, one of the greatest you know, high school decathletes of all time. He was going to be my training partner. This was all set up. Like it was all falling into place. Like I was going to get a full scholarship, which was something which meant like just financial independence and and having that taken care of and off my plate, which was awesome. And it was just smooth other than the academic stuff and, and all the things that go along with that with transferring. But that's awesome. But, yeah. Like, dream come true there. That's great. And you and that first season you were at Texas. I mean, you just killed it, didn't you? It was again, it was a transition. I did win. I won the national championship, which was just I couldn't have imagined it. It would have been, I think it would have been a lot harder to do at Mississippi State, but it was because I had gotten injured a couple of times and they had just awesome support here. But I, I didn't score near as many points. You know, I scored 200 fewer points in my first year at Texas than I did my last year at Mississippi State. I just happened really? to, to win, win at the big meet. Wow. I, yeah. You know, I, I got better in every event. I got faster, stronger, did better, but I just never put together a decathlon. And so we just tried to time it up and it just never fell into place for us. But again, that's the transition. That's part of, you know, learning a new system and figuring it out. But we were super, super confident in, in, my, in like the thing, the foundations that were being laid that season. That's so cool. Well, I, I was talking to Michelle Carter in actually last week's episode, uh, another of our favorite Longhorns. And Man, um, I love her. She, yeah, she's great. She's so funny. Um, but she was telling us about her transition from college to pro. Like, how did that kind of happen for you? And I guess where does like the first Olympics fall into all of that scenario? Because for me, we don't have a pro circuit in diving. So that the whole like going from college to pro is like a, a crazy thing for me. So like walk walk me through that. Ooh, yeah. And then my transition is obviously a little bit different than, than Michelle's or like really, we call them single eventers, people that are actually really good at what they do. Um, <laughs> you, you keep saying that was, you're obviously good at what you do. <laughs> well, it's I, really good at a lot of things, but not great at anything. That's, that's kind of where decathletes fall. But, you know, for myself, it was, I, it was known basically about nine months after I won the national championship, I ended up setting the collegiate record at the Texas Relays. And that was when it was like, okay, I have a, a legitimate future here. And I think there's an actual opportunity for me to earn an income, you know, not have ah. to go off and, and get a job or go be a, you know, a part-time coach to try to subsidize my, my lifestyle so that I can train. And shortly after that season, I had, a, I had an indoor season the very next year. So I was going to get my master's and pursue a master's in, in biomechanics. And ended up putting that on, deferring that. And in the interim, Nike uh, approached me and, and offered me a very, very small uh, yearly stipend to wear their kit exclusively. And there were some you know, performance incentives and bonuses and stuff kind of baked in there. But the, the contract was going to take me through the Olympic year. So it was going to be a three-year contract with kind of a one-year option. So I was like, wow, I get to train for three years. I get to try to make an Olympic team. And it was full sin from that moment on. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, so was was the pro circuit like? Were you doing all those different like European meets and all that kind of stuff too? Oh, not at all. And that's the thing. So that oh, yeah, sorry. So that's the difference. So Michelle could go to Europe for a month at a time and maybe throw in like you know eight to eight to twelve competitions and just start collecting checks along the way because she was so good. Whereas for the decathlon, there really wasn't you know a professional circuit. There were four. There were four or five major decathlons all over the world that were kind of like super invitational, you know, invite only. 
there's one in Italy, one in France, one in Austria, and then you'd have the US championships and then you'd have a major championship like the world world championships or Olympics. And so that was pretty much it. That's pretty much all that was on the table. The only thing for us as decathletes were that when the Olympics rolled around, it was kind of a very, it was thanks to Dan and Dave and all those guys, it was a really marketable event. There was, there were a lot of marketing dollars being thrown at decathletes just because of kind of the everyman kind of thing. Well, in the title world's greatest athlete, you know, the, the man can, can do everything, right? That, yeah, that helps too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to, to Jim Thorpe for that. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's cool. Well, so you, sweet, you've got, you've got a contract. You're like, I can do this. Like, what was it like going into Beijing 2008? I I remember getting like stress headaches that summer because I felt so ready. Like I just wanted it to be there already. Yeah. Um, It's hard, isn't it? Like almost the closer you get, the harder, like (laughs) the harder Uh, it is to wait. It was like, I almost didn't even want to go practice because I didn't want to waste it. I (laughs) I didn't want to waste all the good reps I had left. But for me, making the team was a big relief. That one kind of set the, set the tone. I had a big personal best there, despite a couple of pretty bad events. I'd just beaten one of, my, one of the guys I'd looked up to. Um, and that was kind of like, oh, wow. I just went from like, hopefully I can make the Olympic team to, oh, wow, I can medal. I can really do something here. My teammate there, Brian Clay, was far and above. You know, he was far and away the best in the world at the time. And he was, he was going to win the gold medal no matter what anybody else did. But I went in with the mindset of, you know, let's you know, show the world how how great I am and how, how good we are and as, as Americans and all this stuff. And it, and it, I got there and it was my first time out of the country. Oh, really? Oh yeah. I mean, I was what, 20, how old am I? 23, <laughs> 24 years old, had never been out of the country, had never been to any of those big European meets, had never seen or competed against anyone other than like, like maybe a Canadian, you know, here and there. So I'm, I'm in China, I'm at the, at the village and, and, I think I got a little caught up in everybody else's tension. Like it wasn't like me to be super tense. I always tried to enjoy myself, but it became very a very tense experience for me. And found myself literally sitting on the pole vault pit after three misses up at my opening height and out of medical metal metal contention and then just like kind of waking up. Like this was all some kind of weird bad dream and it was just I don't want to call it a horrible experience because it set the tone and set the stage for the rest of my life, but it was just one of those one of those things where the moment and and everything that went along with it, I was mentally so unprepared for that it just swallowed me up. Well, I mean, you still finished fourth place, right? No, I was in I was in third place and I finished like DNF. I finished in dead uh, last place. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. I thought, oh wow. So I mean where how do you I mean, because like the Olympics, whether you do good or bad, I feel like there's just that what they call it, like the Olympic blues afterwards. You know, there's that kind of like dip you go because you've been preparing for so long for this like one event and then it's over. And so there's all these like adrenaline let down, all these letdowns of like emotions and chemicals in your body, you know, and, and we kind of walk through this funk and having kind of that finish that was really upsetting. Like, how did you walk out those next days? Were you like coming back like, I'm just going to come back and tear it up? Or was it like, dude, I might be done? Or where where was your brain? You know, that young 24-year-old in me was, I'm going to come back and, and prove every to everybody that I'm better than this. And I'm going to train harder. I'm going to do this and this. And I remember coming back. It was early September. And I went in my coach's office, wanted to have a meeting. We sat down and the, the head coach was there and my coach was there. They just were like, I, I wanted to start training that day. And they're like, nah, we'll see you on October 1st. You need to take the rest of the month and figure out if this is something you really want to do or not. And I bear in mind, I'm still under contract. Like I still am getting paid to do this. I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't I want to do this? And they're like, no, 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 go sit, go 
go be still, go be with your own thoughts and figure this out for yourself because we can't help you unless you want really want to do this and, and really buy into it. And what they meant by that was just on the professionalism side. You know, just showing up and checking boxes and relying on talent is not going to get me from where I was, you know, in college winning and setting records and stuff and making Olympic teams. If I really wanted to be good and take the next step and kind of stand on the medal stand, I needed to professionalize this both from the, the preparation side, but the mental side as well. And so spent that month taking personal stock of myself as a, as a, as a competitor and where my gaps were and what, what was wrong. You know, why did, why did Beijing happen? And did it have to happen? Yeah, came back October 1st, and it was very methodical. Everything that I did, I wrote down. We took stock. I took mental, had like, how did I feel that day kind of thing? Smiley face, one through 10 kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I basically, yeah, became a professional that season uh, following the Olympics. Did you enjoy that or was it hard? It's scary. Because I think for any athlete, and I think this happens a lot in youth sports too. And I, I felt it when I was growing up where putting yourself out there is really hard. And by putting yourself out there, that means trying your best. And trying your best, you are essentially saying, this is all I've got. And if that comes up short, that is so scary. If, if my best shot comes up short, you, you, you're caught in this, what is everybody going to think? What Coming up short when you're giving your best can make you feel terrible as a, as a kid, make you feel judged. And, it, and it's things that, that you put on yourself. And I struggled that year and learned that year that you can't put expectations on yourself that you, you know, un unnecessary ones that you think other people are doing. And it is far worse to live with regret than it is to put yourself out there and fail. It's actually, a, it's a, it was, became a beautiful thing for me to fail and fail gloriously because you learn so much from it. Because now you can look back and say, okay, this is what I did. I gave it, I used every minute I had to get better, but this is where I came up short. How can we change what we did? Whereas if you're not giving your best, you don't know what to look back on. You don't know where to go with that. And living with regret of knowing you didn't do enough. I mean, that's a, a cancer. That's a, that stays with you for the rest of your life. That's the kind of, that's deathbed kind of stuff where you're like, right. you have those kind of regrets. And so it was a hard year for me, but it was a kind of a full sin. It's got to feel like what a cliff jump is, mm. right? Or jumping off a 10 meter. If you hesitate, or if you mess, or if there's any hesitation, things can go terribly, terribly wrong. And so I, I bought into it, you know, wholeheartedly. And from that, that moment, that like October of 2008, there was not one season where I didn't give my best. I'm just incredibly proud of those years. That's awesome. That is so beautifully said. I absolutely love that. And you did. You came back in 2009 and you won that title, World's Greatest Athlete at the World Championships. I mean, so you obviously probably realized, okay, this is a good trajectory. <laughs> it was that that vindication. It, and it wasn't that like, hey, we figured it out. It was just like, oh man, this is what this feels like. <laughs> and, but the other the other side of the coin was like, it would have felt very, very similar had I gotten second or third or, or fourth. Like it was this, this like, wow, this felt good. This whole year felt really, really good. I really, truly enjoyed what I was doing and it became addictive. What I, what, what that was, that feeling of like putting all your effort and smart effort into a purpose and into a goal and into a, a focused direction with a team of people behind you, the right team supporting you and helping you along the way. It just showed the power of, of that mindset. Oh, for sure. And I mean, you came back and you won again in 2011. I mean, that's 
that's incredible to be able to win back to back world titles like that in, in such an unpredictable, you know, event as decathlon, where there's 10 events and 10 wildly different things that can go wrong every time. I mean, that's, that's really incredible. I don't think a whole lot of people have done that, have they? Let me think. Uh, four, I think four or five of us have, have done it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that is so, so, so cool. Well, let me, let me take it back a little bit. And I, w- I want to ask you a couple of things about the decathlon specifically. So I'm guessing pole vault is still your favorite event. Absolutely. Yep. So what's your least favorite? Oh, 1500. That's, that's a softball. An easy question. <laughs> well, I mean, does it just suck in the competition or is it terrible to train for too? Uh, Both. I, I don't know. <laughs> yes. The answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> I, I grew to love the training part of it because of what the ancillary benefits of, of how we kind of structure, we kind of figured out, okay, Trey, like it's just not in the cards. You're not going to be, you know, a four minute miler. It's not going to happen. You're not, you're not going to run 430 in the mile. You're a five minute miler. And we just need you to have enough gas to, at the, you know, at the last lap to be able to sprint with someone if you have to sprint. And, uh, we started to structure training a little bit more creatively to train those energy systems in a way that wasn't just mentally debilitating because, you basically are training into failure where you're trying to hit these times and hit these tempos and hit these these sequences so you're comfortable running at a certain pace where you're just exhausted. And that feeling on a weekly basis is exhausting. You know, just mentally going, all right, look, this is a death march. Here we go. <laughs> like I'm there's no way around it. It's not like any other training session where you finish and you're like, man, that was great. You're gonna finish this wanting to cut off your legs and throw up. That's, that's how that ends. And so oh man, I, I grew to love the training part of it. I grew to love, we structured it in a way that, that would kind of help my 400 and take some load off and volume and stuff. And the, the 1500 was always just a beast. I'm guessing it was, but it was just a relief. It, it wasn't fun, but you knew lining up for the 1500 when the gun went off. All right, it's over. The decathlon in, in and of itself, the mental anguish and the anxieties and, and the butterflies and the adrenaline, it's over. It's now it's race. Let's go race. And this is the last race. Okay. So when you cross the finish line, done. Like you're done. No one can make you run another event. It's over. <laughs> and let's go race. Let's go hit our times, hit our checks. And Well, that, that does have to be good. I was going to ask you if that was the last event because then, yeah, you just put it all out there. It doesn't matter. I mean, you could just put it all on the line at that point, right? I mean, that part has got to feel good. It, it's measured. Yeah. I've, I've done it both ways where I've put it all on the line in the first 1200 meters. And then I've had to literally crawl across the finish line. And then there's <laughs> been times where I've saved too much for the last lap. And I've had the last lap was my fastest one. I think in London, my last lap was my fastest lap. And I, and I look back on it in regret and was like, gosh, darn it. You know, <laughs> but it's a, it, the feeling afterwards, the camaraderie with your, your fellow competitors. I think it's unlike pretty much anything else in sport where I mean, everyone's just hugging and kissing on each other just for no reason. There's just so much emotion that you both just went through this ordeal together. And everyone knows what it took to get there, too. It, it's not just like you show up and you're like, hey, guys, y'all doing decathlon? I'll, I'll try it. You know, they've, it took them four years of, of, of hell to get to that finish line with you. And so that's a pretty cool feeling. But again, yeah, 1500 is terrible. Yeah, no, that, that's terrible. cool, though. I love it. I mean, how long does it take to recover from a decathlon, like a, a competition? We had a protocol pretty dialed up. We weren't doing anything super intense for about 14, 15, 16 days, but we're doing other recovery stuff and active modalities. And we're, we are training, but it is, it's just regenerative. Like we're not trying to pound anything. Right. That makes a lot of sense. 
Well, okay. Well, I digress. I'm just so curious because I don't know much about that decathlon. So it's fun for me to, to hear you talk about it. Um, so, okay. So now you've won 2009, 2011 Worlds. You are the world's greatest athlete and you're going into London in 2012. Like how different was that from 2008? Oh, I... I- really incomparable you couldn't i in 2008 i was incredibly healthy i'd had a good run-up all that kind of stuff but in 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 the 2011 world championships i actually completely tore my elbow to pieces i I completely tore my ucl off of my elbow and had tommy john surgery to repair it in late september of 2011 right after the the world championships were you competing on it like that uh, no, it happened on my third attempt in the javelin. And so oh. when I ran the 1500, that was probably the worst 1500 of my life. Cause I, yeah, I was on painkillers and didn't know really where I, what was going on. And I oh, <laughs> had a shattered elbow after surgery. It was kind of like, okay, I've got, you know, eight and a half months or eight, or maybe right at eight months to the, to the Olympic trials. Am I going to even be able to, to throw anything or, or pole vault or do anything necessary? Am I going to be able to even train in order to get ready to make a team? Like, what is this even going to mean? And so upon making the team in 2012 it was house money it was like wow i can't i cannot believe i just made this this team london is going to be so much fun so that's all i was i was just purely concerned with having a good time and fortunately too mentally all the pressure was on my teammate ashton eaton ashton had set the world record at the olympic trials he was the guy i had beaten the year before uh, at the world championships and now the, the kind of the roles were reversed where i i was there on you know the company dime like it, it all the pressure was on ashton to win to maybe set the olympic record or set another world record and it, i was just kind of that afterthought kid like oh trey hurt his elbow he's not scoring that much this year and so for me i mean i had a beer the night before the competition like i was i was up pretty late the night before watching my teammate uh leo manzano win the silver medal in the 1500 and like it was just this so it, it didn't bother you being in that position. You were actually like, this is great kind of a way to cap things off. Like, is that more what you were thinking? Yeah, let's go see how good I can do. Like, I had nothing to lose. It was, again, it, it was house money. Let's go see what happens. Instead of like pressure, like Trey don't blow it. Trey don't, you know, let's see, let's not mess up in all 10 events. Every event was icing on the cake. Just the ability to do the events was icing on the cake. So walking away with a silver there, which is incredible. Uh, I mean, were you just like, wow, okay, that, I mean, how, I, I guess is, is feeling that way going into it, the way to do it, <laughs> you know? If you can trick yourself, if you can do those, <laughs> that mental gymnastics, yeah, I highly recommend it, but it's really hard to do. It was, I, again, tried it for the next eight years, didn't work out. Um, I had more joy and happiness after that silver than I did at any other point in my career. It was just this. I could not believe I was sitting there with a, a silver medal. Couldn't believe it. That's so awesome. What what were what was the best event at in London for you? Javelin. So the the very the very same event that had torn my elbow the year before I had rehabbed. Again, going back to regretting nothing. I have the the folders and the documentation of how many reps of rehab stuff that I did on my my elbow and it's to the tune of like hundreds of thousands of reps. Oh man. Um of like forearm rotations and wrist flexes and elbows and tyi like all the stuff right and it it just i had no regrets and i hadn't even thrown a javelin really like thrown a javelin like i had tossed it at my feet up until the week before the olympic trials and so the week before the olympic trials i'm like all right let's test it let's just see if this is even gonna let's set some realistic expectations here and i threw the jab about 40 meters in training four zero like 
not far at all. Okay. A little over half of what my best all time was. Okay. Wow. So, now you're putting it in perspective. Okay. <laughs> not, not good. So I, I threw 69 meters when I tore the elbow. Okay. So I threw about 40 meters and was like, okay. And I, you do the math and you're like, okay, if I do every, all the other nine events this well, the 40 meters might not make it. I need to be able to throw 50 meters. Five zero is going to be the, the high watermark here for us to even have a shot at making the team. And so I threw 51 meters. I made the team. And that summer, I really had let my elbow rest, relax, and hadn't done a lot of throwing. Had done a lot of like weighted balls and all that stuff. And so I'm sitting there. I'm in second place in London and I'm on the jab runway. And it's basically like, I've got one shot. I'm going to throw this as hard as I can. And I had my elbow taped up as <laughs> I think as much as you can physically tape anything up. <laughs> and and t- told myself, I've got one shot. This is it. This might be my last Olympics. I have one throw for the rest of my life. Regret nothing. Let's go for it. Got a clap going and ran down the runway, threw it as hard as I could, all, knowing that the kid with the Olympic record, I say the kid, the, the grown man with the Olympic uh, decathlon javelin record was the guy that was in third that was gunning for me. And oh. he could throw it. Even on our best days, when I was at my best, he still threw 10 meters farther than I did, which is several hundred points. Wow. So I didn't have that big of a lead on him. So I knew this is it. And so I kind of messed up. I didn't have a great throw, but I threw it as hard as I could and I had no repercussions on my arm and it landed at about like 60 meters. So this is way farther. And I was, I was like, whoa. And my coach is like, shut it down. You're good. Let's just go run for it in the 1500. <laughs> like, that's the last thing I want to do. Let's throw one more time <laughs> and see if we can throw a little bit further to buy myself some space. Because the guy, you know, right after me had thrown 75 meters and I'm like, oh no, oh gosh, I'm gonna have to run for it. Um, which is not a great feeling. And so <laughs> I lined up for the second, the second attempt and they tried to shut down the runway because they were doing a, an Olympic medal ceremony. And so for everybody listening, the whole stadium, no matter if like, this is your moment, it could be your last jump, your last throw, your last attempt, your last race. If you're in the blocks or whatever, they're going to stop everything in the stadium and start playing somebody's national anthem and give them their medals and do that. And you're required to stop. Well, they started, I had started a clap on the runway and they were telling me that you're no, we're done. We're going to do this ceremony. I told them to get off the runway. I'm like, nope. There's only one. <laughs> there's only like one like more rev of this engine that's going to happen. My adrenaline was going. I got it. Yeah, I got the yeah. Yeah, I got the guys behind me to start clapping. Like everything was moving. I was like, nope, I'm throwing. Don't worry about it. Move, 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 move. And they were like, okay, fine, sure, go. <laughs> and uh, a couple of seconds later, I I ripped down there and I I threw almost 67 meters on my second throw. Oh, wow. And yeah, just sprinted around the stadium, ripped my uh, braces off, off my elbow and went up, went straight up, hugged my coach, hugged my, my friends and family who were sitting right there behind it. Like I just went nuts, probably broke every Olympic protocol. <laughs> um, but that was it. That was like one of the coolest moments of my life. Oh, that is so neat. So at that point, like, I mean, yeah, that's that's just got to feel so good. Oh my goodness. So what what were the years following London like? Cuz I mean, you you stuck around. I know you were gearing up for 2016 and you've had other injuries. Like what was that next kind of quad like for you? Yeah, rife with with injury. I mean, did you did you know after London you were going to keep going though or, or were you kind of taking some time again to kind of like reevaluate things? Uh, no, I had a, a really, really great agent, uh, Paul Doyle, who negotiated a really good contract for me. Um, so at that time in London, I was on my second contract with Nike. And so it was going to take me through the next Olympiad. So it was going to take wow. me through 2016. That's so awesome. I knew I had it all set up. I was going to be taken care of. I had a great training environment. Everybody was sticking around. Like everything was just all lined up. 
it was just, I don't want to, not freak injuries, but just things. Like things got in the way. And it seemed like they were getting in the way at the most inopportune moments. Like whether it was uh, back spasms or sprained ankles, whatever, a lot of incompetition cramping, like inexplicable stuff where I'm, I'm out there, I put in the work, I'm in probably in 2013 and then in 2015 at the world championships, I'm in the best shape of my life. And it just, it was falling apart at the biggest moments. And it was pretty, it was really, really frustrating at the time, like in, in the arena to deal with those disappointments because I, of all the work that, it, that I had put into it. But I still was able to go to bed. You know, I still was, I wasn't losing sleep. I wasn't doing anything because I was doing everything right. And so, you know, I look back on it with a little bit of, man, I wonder what would have happened. But they were still awesome years. And in, in 2014, I was still the world, I was the world's number one decathlete. There just wasn't, you know, a championship behind it just because it's one of those off years. And then in 2016, yeah, probably one of the, one of the worst injuries of my career. I dislocated my foot in mid January of 2016. And I just, I, I could barely even run until May of that year. How do you dislocate your foot? La- uh, landing on my feet, pole vaulting. Oh. Yeah. And I, it wasn't like a full pole vault or anything like that. I just caught a spike kind of uh, sliding into the pit and it just, my foot com- completely popped out. Oh. And yeah. And so it was just a super long, I knew the, I knew the playbook though. I knew what I could do and what I couldn't do and how to get back. And it was just a matter of, you know, pain tolerance and, and stability. And it, I just didn't have enough time to get into shape. And so, yeah, I got to the Olympic trials and just couldn't even finish day one. And it was just a tough, it was tough sledding. But then I landed in Austin coming back from the Olympic trials and I had a voicemail from an executive producer at NBC and they wanted me to be a commentator. So still got to go to Rio, still got to like see the, the decathlon and stuff and, and see it from a, a really cool, unique, different perspective. So wh- how was that though? I mean, I like, it's cool. I know. And I know you said you like, you loved watching, watching Ashton like win again, but like, I mean, it's got a as an athlete who was right in the mix of things like that still got to just eat at you a little bit. Like how, how did you feel? It's a bittersweet thing. You know, it's something where I feel really blessed and fortunate to have had the opportunity to go back uh, or go to, to Rio and, and see everyone and be so close to that, that thing that was my life. That was very much a part of my life. But again, back to that no regret thing, it was just what more could I have done? There was nothing else I could have done. You know, I wasn't, I didn't get injured on Sixth Street dancing. I got injured doing what I loved, you know. And <laughs> right. It was one of those things where it's like, wow, how cool is this? I could be home watching this on TV, which that would have been pretty tough. Like that would have been much much harder than being here next to my 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 guys, my the my compatriots and Yeah. It was I, cool. I understand that. The overall experience was unbelievable. Like the the producers, uh, I got to do it with with Sonia Richards Ross. She was in a similar situation I was where we both wish we were out there. So we got to like during lunch every day and in the, in the booth up, up at the stadium, got to kind of like share how we're feeling. You know, it was kind of nice, nice therapy on the bus rides home. You know? <laughs> right. No, that's so cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love that you just keep bringing this up. Like, like regret nothing. If you know that you've put it all out there, like it's not like you're going to look back in five years going, what if, what if I had only done this? I mean, you know, you did everything you could do that you had control over. And like, there's a piece about that, even though it might still be frustrating. Like I just, I want like athletes and, and, and coaches listening to know that like they're, 
even though it might be frustrating, there's a peace that you have knowing that you've done everything and that that's not your, it's not on you. You know what I mean? It's not your fault that like it didn't go the way it's, that's just the way the cards fell, you know? But I, I think that's a piece that some people need. Cause there's, if you're not doing all the things, then that's, that's going to be a whole different feeling afterward that you're always going to wonder. And it's always going to nag at you, you know? Yeah. And then there's a, there's a, there's a definite like cloudy line in the middle where there's this fallacy where you think you're doing it all where you, you got to have somebody in your corner to, to hold you straight too, yes. you know, whether that's your partner your coaching staff, whoever it is, your teammates, there's definitely like an accountability section in there somewhere for somebody to make sure, hey, man, I know you say you're doing everything, but you're going to bed at midnight. That That's not okay, you know? Right. Or like, I'll be, I'll be in there. We, we have this with some of our, because I train with a lot of like younger athletes. Obviously, no nobody's my age in diving anymore, but we'll be in there and we're all in there for the same amount of time. But some of us are actually like doing quality exercises and everybody else is like flopping around, like, you know, just going through the motions. I'm like, we're, we're spending the same amount of time here, but we're like, some of us are getting a lot more done than other people, you know, it's like, let's just have a little look at that. But that's, it's hard sometimes to be personally accountable. So I love that you do have to have people who can be honest with you and keep you in check and kind of give it to you straight sometimes. Yeah. And that, that there's the other thing you just mentioned to energize yourself. There's nothing quite like being around college age and younger kids. And when you start calling them kids, that's how you know that you're old. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was, yeah, my last year of, of competing, there were freshmen on campus that were born like after I could drive. Isn't you that know, weird? like I, I had my driver's license and these kids were just being born and now we're we're lacing up our spikes next to one another, you know? And they're in college and they look like they're 12 and you're like, wait oh a minute. <laughs> they're just babies. I know. Babies. That's so funny. Hey, some of my teammates are like 10. So I, yeah, Ooh. I hear you. I know. It's weird. I'm like, my kids are now almost that age. So <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> okay. Well, so... You have this in Rio where you're you're doing the um, the analysis from the booth instead of being on the track, but you actually came back in 2017 and astounded everyone by winning U.S. Nationals at 33. Like, hello, <laughs> where did that? That was awesome. Were you surprised about that? Yeah, pretty surprised again <laughs> because so I I spent that year the, like the eight months after I dislocated my foot, really compensating on the other leg and. First week back of training after Rio, you know, super energized, gonna let's get back on the saddle. We're gonna win a world championship this year. I tore the plantar fascia off my heel of the other foot. And I I ran on it for like a month and finally got some pictures looked at it. And there was a 60% tear on it. And so I got a bunch of injections and PRP. And I again, only up until like a year ago did it not bother me immensely every day. And it just hurt really, really bad. I was doing minimal, minimal, minimal training could barely do anything. And I was just, I got, I got an, ex, an exemption to even get to the, the U S championships. Cause oh, like wow. didn't have it a calf on. I didn't put together a score. Couldn't finish really. Like couldn't get it together. And so showed up at USA's and was just kind of like, all right, this is my last one. Like nobody knew it was my last one, but I had mentally told, you know, my wife knew my family knew this was going to be my last decathlon ever. And I was just going to enjoy it. Well, it was record heat in Sacramento. It was like 130 degrees. Oh my gosh. Uh, it was 130 something on the track. Our spikes were melting. Everything oh, was melting. It was just... Are you a, kidding? It was such a wild experience, but I was just... Everyone out there was freaking out, but because I knew it was my last, it was just like, this is kind of crazy. This is neat. Cool. You know, <laughs> I just, I was holding it together and I ended up having a, you know, pretty good first day. The, you know, the first five events are on the first day and I, I closed it out and my foot was none worse for the wear because... I took minimum jumps in the high jump. I only took one jump in the long jump, I think. Like it was basically 
a minimal effort. Like how little can we do to just get a score and get to day one so that my foot doesn't, you know, explode. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Like it just, the next event, then the next event, and then the next event. And these younger guys who again were 10, 11 years younger than me, we're having bad events all littered on there. And I was just having okay events spread all the way through and it got down to the 1500. And again, I knew the time that I had to run and I would, I was going to run it if I needed to. And so I was just going to stick on the hip of the guy who was in second. And I think eventually I, like in the last lap, I ended up passing him and was just like, what just, what's happening right now? (laughs) I remember just thinking that in the 1500, like what is going on? And then I, yeah, crossed the line and I actually won the doggone uh, championship and had to, and again, it wasn't my last decathlon. I had to go to the world championships after that. And how did worlds go? Not great. I've never crashed out of a hurdle race before. And I crashed out of the hurdle race there. Oh no. And again, it had a great first day. I was in third place. Um, no, sorry. I was in fifth place, but I was within striking distance. I had some really good events. I was doing some things really, really well in a couple of events for day two. And it was just inexplicable. Just, I, again, just one of those. Nothing I could have done. Yeah, nothing I could have done. The hurdles come at you fast. And before you know it, you're you're too close. And so, yeah, still have the scars on my shins from it. And oh, yeah, the one and only time I've crashed out. So, uh, And so, I mean, that's such an interesting way to end with this like surprise win, then going on to do like what you your last one, then you're doing another one and you're doing well, but then it, it ends not the way you want it to. I mean, and then you decided to retire. So that's kind of a, a it's like a wild ending. You know, I mean, did you have peace about retiring? Because like you thought nationals was going to be it or, or did that was that a struggle? No, it was the the perfect timing for everything because at the top of the food chain, my wife and I, Chelsea had just started a family. Um, We just had our first daughter, Francesca. She was born in technically that season, but in 2016 in December. So she was nine months old and it was time to start being a dad and being a, you know, a a real family. Cause I mean, the life of a professional athlete is not normal. It's incredibly like kind of self-serving and sacrificial on the parts of all the other members of your family. And it was time to be done. Um, it timed up really, really well with, you know, my contract being up. So we weren't going to pursue any kind of extension or a new, a new deal or anything to kind of keep going to 2020 or anything like that, which in hindsight looks really great right now, because there's no way I could have made it to 2021. And it just, it, again, yeah, the whole season, that whole year was just, this is going to be my last year. It, it, it was time. That finality. That's awesome. We know you're now a dad of three. What, what else are you up to these days? Ooh. Man, I, I went back to school and I got my master's uh, shortly after stepping off the track. And then, yeah, I've started a, a few businesses and, and just trying to, to, again, the transition isn't easy, but it, it's just, it's chapter one. You know, I'm still trying as many things on, trying as many hats on as I can to find the next thing that, I, that I'm passionate about. You know, I'm still, I still love track and field, still passionate about that, still love, you know, following what the University of Texas does, like on the collegiate level. And yeah, still, still kind of just pursuing and following momentum and meeting and talking to as many people as I can and enjoying my time at home, enjoying time with family and and things that I, I felt like I missed in the first nine months with my first daughter. I got to spend that with our our second daughter. And now I'm getting to spend that with our, our brand new little boy, uh, Miles. And yeah, it just is a, is a, a fun kind of journey of all the people I've talked to who are way older, way wiser and more successful than I'll, I'll ever be 
this was the one time in their kids' lives that they they always regretted. You know, they were off building an empire or doing something business-wise, same as I was with my first kid, but you don't get that time back. And so um, it's really important to me that I'm I'm around and I'm, a, I'm available and kind of flexible to be a dad all day, 24-7 and not out of commission too much. I love it. No, and I love that kind of what you're doing is almost paralleling like the beginning of your sports career too. Where you tried a bunch of different things. So you found the thing that this settled or that directed you, you know, where you're supposed to go. So it's kind of a neat little parallel there. But um, Trey, thank you so much for your time, your openness, your humility. Like I absolutely love your sense of humility and just, you know, how, how open and honest you are about everything. Because I think that helps us learn. And, um, you know, I mean, because we can gain something by listening to your wisdom. And uh, yeah, we just appreciate your encouragement and teaching all, all the people listening to Chase After their dreams right now. Oh, but Laura, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, if anybody's listening and just needs one more kick in the butt, just <laughs> don't don't be afraid to put it all out there. There's worse things in the world, but none more, none more difficult to deal with than living with regret. Full send. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.